Hi, this is Ken Clark, the minister of the Old First Church in Bennington, Vermont. Thanks for listening to this service today. These services will be posted weekly on our website and as a podcast entitled A Walk to Cleo Hall, which can be found on Spotify and perhaps other podcast services. This particular service is intended for May 17, 2020. The organist is Jean-Marie Callahan and the preacher is Ken Clark. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Old First Church in Bennington, Vermont. Please join me, if you will, in saying together the opening words found in the order of service. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We gather to give thanks for all creation. We gather to serve and live in God's word. Our first hymn this morning is Morning Has Broken.
the opening prayer is found in the order of service, join me, if you will, in saying it together. Eternal God, in whom we live and move and have our being, whose face is hidden from us by our sin and whose mercy we forget, cleanse us from all offenses and deliver us from proud thoughts and vain desires that humbly we may draw near to thee, confessing our faults, confiding in thy grace, and finding in thee our refuge and our strength through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. If we confess our faults, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. first lesson for this morning is taken from the New Testament in the book of Acts, the 17th chapter, verses 22 through 31. This is that point where the Apostle Paul, you remember if you've been following these lections for the last few weeks, last week we were talking about Saul, who was in Jerusalem at the stoning of St. Stephen. This is the same person who is no longer a cult holder, but someone who has become converted and who is out beginning a ministry among the Gentiles, leaving the Jewish population and speaking to Jews who were gathered in cities far from Jerusalem and speaking to others who might be interested in hearing what he has to say. And this is, as I will explain further in the sermon today, this is the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts as he is, has come to Athens in Greece and is in an important place in that city. Acts 17, 22 through 31. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for God and find God, though indeed God is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, 
even as some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now God commands all people everywhere to repent because God has fixed a day on which God will have the world judged in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here ends the first lesson. Our next hymn is Let the Whole Creation Cry. The second lesson this day is taken from the Gospel of John in the 14th chapter, verses 15 through 21. Again, putting this in some context, it is the time in the speech that Jesus is making to his disciples on the night of the Last Supper. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides in you and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them 
and reveal myself to them. Here ends the second lesson. We have two powerful lessons this morning, both in the Gospel of John and in the book of Acts. I want to deal a little bit with both of them today. I want to tell you first how happy I am that these are challenging me this morning because in the last few sermons I've been out walking with my dog and seemingly getting sermon ideas between my dog and the ducks and everything else in nature. A good thing. Jonathan Edwards, the minister in Northampton, Massachusetts, and a premier American theologian from so long ago, talked about the book of nature and how in addition to scripture, we have the presence of God transmitted to us in a feeling through the nature that we experience together. I hope in some way you are able to enjoy that transcendent feeling and be out in nature a little bit in these coming days. But I must tell you, uh, as I was walking this week with my dog several days in a row, I was waiting for the sermon idea to appear. I was waiting, perhaps the ducks were still there, Maybe there would be a, um, a rabbit, maybe there would be a coyote, maybe there would be something that would inspire me. Maybe there'd be a comet shooting across the sky at night, or maybe there would be some manifestation somehow of what I was supposed to speak about. Alas, we had no such luck. We just had a rather ordinary week out walking in the world. I don't know how your week was, I hope it was both ordinary and extraordinary in some ways. I was turned back to our readings this morning, and it's a good thing. That's why they're there, to keep us refreshed, to let us know where we are. Even when we're in a fallow time, you can pick up the Bible, and you will be taken to places of some spiritual depth. The two readings this morning are, as I've said, extraordinary in many ways. The reading from the Gospel of John forcefully speaks for itself, especially when Jesus speaks of keeping the commandments, of the love of God for God's people, of the sense of the abiding nature of who Jesus is, the sense of the coming of the Spirit, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows. You know because truth, the Spirit, abides with you and he will be in you. This indwelling spirit is so strong. It connects even with the first lesson this morning from the book of Acts, where the Apostle Paul is talking about God in whom we live and move and have our being, almost referring, it seems in some ways, to that sense of that indwelling spirit that Jesus had referenced and promised in the Gospel of John. Paul, interestingly enough, is quoting another person at that point. He's quoting a Greek poet, which is part of the burden of what Paul is doing here in the book of Acts, universalizing the message of Christ, universalizing the Christian gospel, seeing how it appears and echoes and is embedded in the historical consciousness of so many times and people. It is exactly what Christ was talking about, in the Gospel of John, that indwellingness of the Holy Spirit that acts beyond our reason and our knowledge to inform our spiritual life. Very powerful thing. Notice also our opening prayer today opened with those very same words from the Apostle Paul, who was quoting someone else, whose name I will reveal very shortly. 
eternal God in whom we live and move and have our being. What a wonderful thought that is and what a wonderful uh, expression we have with it here in the book of Acts. The selection from the book of Acts, a famous speech of Paul's, which talked as the introduction to this, I mentioned how Paul was president at the stoning of Stephen, then had the conversion experience, and now is on this large ministry, which brings him to Athens. And of course, when he's at Athens, he's at this place where he's speaking to not all Athenians at this point, not just the Jewish population of Athens, not just the Christian church gathered in Athens, but at this point, he has gone to something called the Areopagus, and he is speaking there to a gathering of people, Athenians, but probably not rank-and-file Athenians, probably important Athenians. The Areopagus is a word and a place. It was in Athens. It was on a high spot, and it was where the court of Athens met. It was also called by the Romans the Hill of Mars. And when you then understand that Areopagus is a Greek word and it means the rock of Ares, Ares and Mars being different names for the same god, the god of war. And there is the Areopagus, Mars Hill, up in the city of Athens. There the Areopagus court met. It was the highest court in Greece. They decided both civil, criminal, and religious matters. So when Paul went to this place, high up in the middle of Athenian authority, it was like going to the Jewish temple, but more a combination of a Jewish temple and the court of the Roman governor, all combined into one. He was going into a place where the tradition, and he knew this tradition as a Roman citizen, he knew this tradition of the Greeks for rhetoric. He knew the tradition for argumentation and philosophy. And he was going to a place to speak with people and bring them a message that was so strange and foreign to them. He was speaking to a civilization that had already lasted a thousand years. And he was going to tell them something that they did not know. And this is why Paul's speech is a tremendous piece of rhetoric, speech-making, persuasive argumentation. Choose your word, but Paul did it so well. I'm going to explain a little bit what's going on here in terms of how he made this speech and how it went. Now, the speech that we have in the, in the Bible is probably a much shortened form. People were not used to just getting up and speaking for a few moments. We tend to speak for a longer period of time. But what we say gets condensed down, and this is probably the case here with Paul. What Paul does in this speech are a couple very significant rhetorical, they're not tricks, but they're devices. And they're dev devices that are able to bring the listeners over to your side, to make them convinced that you are telling them the truth. Again, I think of the Gospel of John, <clears throat> the spirit of truth to make them think that you are conveying to them the truth at this moment, a truth that they need to hear. And so what does he do? The first rhetorical device is flattery. Now, I know all of you in this congregation are smart and wise and beautiful enough, extremely beautiful people to understand what this rhetorical device of flattery is all about. 
it puts you into a mood where you think well about the person addressing you. You think well about yourself. You establish a mutual respect, an admiration for one another. You appreciate this other person's judgment because they know so much about you to know that you are wise and beautiful, judicious, flattery. That is what Paul is doing when he says, For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. He's flattering them. He's saying that he's looked around their impressive city and he sees something that is significant to him that is part of their heritage. And so in a second step, Paul moves from flattery into the idea of citing something familiar. I see something you have here that you treasure. I see that you value it. It's something I want to talk to you about. It's something from your own tradition. It's something that's part of your life. It's something that you deal with every day. And therefore, we have again established a common tie. Not only do, does one flatter, but one gives you something that is familiar. Now, in the text, it's interesting. Years ago, the lines from the book of Acts, the first line is the real flattery line. Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. That's the idea of flattery. The second idea is the idea of something familiar, the altar. But the first idea, the idea of flattery, used to be translated, instead of how extremely religious you are, the translation was often made, how extremely superstitious you are. In some ways, the word can mean both things, but you can see in our, in our renderings of the gospel, the sense of extremely, extremely religious is perhaps the proper way to convey Paul's words at that point. Certainly, Paul didn't intend to insult the Athenians. He wanted them on his side. So he used that phrase in terms of, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. And then he cites the familiar object, the altar that says to an unknown god. And then he uses a third device in this speech before he moves on to make his own claims. His final claim is to enlist the aid of a witness, to call upon someone whom the people know that he can use, whose words he can use, to convince them of his point of view. And so, towards the end of this section that we have to this morning, Paul says, citing the existence of God, for in him we live and move and have our being. There's that phrase we used in our opening prayer this morning. There's that sense that was conveyed also in the Gospel of John. And here's Paul citing it. These words are so common to us. We know them from the Bible. We think perhaps that they have always been in the Bible and that's where you go to find them. Well, they have always been in the Bible and you will find them there, but they were words not uttered first by a biblical prophet. They were words uttered by a Greek poet. And that is Paul's genius at this point. He doesn't just cite foreign scripture to the Athenians. He takes the words of a Greek poet and he shares them as words which buttress his argument, his point of view. For as your poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. What an argument Paul makes here. How wonderful. First, the flattery. I see that you are an extremely religious people. 
Secondly, the common shared object that they all have that Paul points to, this altar to an unknown God. And thirdly, as part of his speech to them, he doesn't use some foreign scripture exclusively. He uses words of one of their own poets. That is why this speech by Paul at the Areopagus on Mars Hill, if you're a Roman, Paul at the Areopagus is so powerful and such a great model of speaking. Now, what's Paul saying and what's going on here? Sometimes when I preach from this selection of scripture, it's easy to focus simply on the unknown God element. It's easy to focus on the fact that perhaps the Athenians were being clever, that they just wanted to cover their bets. In other words, as Paul is going up to the Areopagus, there are temples to all kinds of gods. You remember the Greek pantheon, there are too many gods to name, and they all have exciting histories, and they all have adventures. They have real lives, it seems. And then amidst all this, all these gods, is this altar to an unknown God. What could that be about? With this plethora of gods, they still put this one unknown God. There are several theories as to what this might mean. One of that is a good theory to preach on is the idea that we should cover our bets, perhaps. Sometimes the agnostic among us says, well, I don't believe in God, but I'm going to live my life as if God existed. It's a good wager. And so, in some sense, the altar to an unknown God is covering some bets. Others suggest that perhaps the translation isn't to an unknown God, but to unknown gods. That's a flexibility that may be in the text, and it would point to the fact that perhaps there were gods from the Far East and other places that were being recognized, in some sense a kind of religious pluralism at that point. Others suggest, since we're in Greece, we're in Athens, the world was created by an unmoved mover, a first cause that began everything. It wasn't just Zeus. It was this prime mover. And that prime mover is really, in some sense, in philosophy, an unknown god, or could be translated that way. This is where the things get a little bit more interesting. And I'm not sure exactly how clever Paul is, but as I think about the threads of this sermon, I realize that Paul may have been a pretty wise speaker at this point. What comes across to us as a speech that is a wonderful, strong, well-crafted, well-designed speech is even more than that. And why do I say that? For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said. <clears throat> if you go on a hunt to find out which Greek poet said that, you will come up with a poet named Epimenides. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Epimenides, and I'm going to mispronounce his name a couple times during this sermon, but don't worry about that. He will forgive me. Epimenides. Epimenides was the person who it is thought wrote this piece of poetry. We're not exactly sure who the exact author was, but it seems to be the best bet that we have. You can find it not only referred to by Paul in this section of the book of Acts, but it's also referred to in 
the letter, Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 1, verse 12. There, he quotes this piece of poetry more in full. There the poetry is as follows. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies, but thou art not dead. Thou livest and abidest forever, for in thee we live and move and have our being. What a wonderful hunt to find that. Epimenides quoted in this letter. And not only that, but a nice swipe at the Cretans as well. We've all met the Cretans. They live down the street from us. They're the ones that don't park in the right place all the time. They're the ones who party late at night and make too much noise. They're Cretans, almost as bad as the Philistines, right? They're Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies, a bad sort, the sort you might find on a Friday night if you could ever get out again on a Friday night. These Cretans, who were they? Well, I don't know many Cretans by name, but I do know one. The first Cretan I can tell you that I know is named Epimenides. He was a Cretan. He lived on the Isle of Crete. The interesting thing about this is Epimenides, as a philosopher, is thought to be the originator of the liar's paradox, sometimes called Epimenides' paradox. The Cretans, always liars. You know how this goes. If I say I am always a liar, can you trust what I have just told you? And it becomes paradoxical. This is Epimenides' paradox. Although Epimenides is known for this, he's known for other things as well. And what he's known for, and what the Apostle Paul is quoting him for, I think, in this selection from the book of Acts, has more to do with the altar to an unknown God. And why do I say this? Well, we've spoken about some reasons why the Athenians may have had an altar to an unknown God to cover their bets, to worship all gods, maybe to express a principle. But if you go back into Athenian folklore, you find that Epimenides was connected to an incident in 6th century B.C. Greece. Or for those of you who keep other calendars, during the time of the 46th Olympiad. That's the old version of the Olympics. Athens, at that time, was suffering a plague. People were dying, unaccounted for, horribly, in great numbers. Athens was suffering a plague, and it would not stop. They went to the temple. They prayed to the gods. They made their sacrifices. All the gods of different names and different powers and different histories who might help them, the gods of hygiene, the gods of crowd control, I suppose, if there is such a god. But the plague would not stop. It was thought, and this is human thinking, the Athenians thought to themselves, what has brought this upon us? And they had an easy answer. They, there was in Athens right before this plague a revolt led by Cylon, and he had promised to overthrow the Athenian establishment. 
And what the Athenians did when the revolt was put down was that if they surrendered, their lives would be spared. We know the end of that. They killed them all. End of revolt, beginning of plague, and the plague would not stop. Their sacrificial offerings were of no use. No God would help them. So they went and did what they would naturally do at that point. They consulted the oracle at Delphi. And what did the priestesses at Delphi tell them? There is or must be a God who is unappeased. This is the way cause and effect thinking does work, of course. You know, If it doesn't work, there must be some cause overlooked. There must be some God who is unappeased, who is overlooked. Who is that God? That God is unknown. We've searched, we've tried everything. There is no God we can call on who will help us here. Who, who knows, who would know this unknown God? Who can tell us if we only had the name, then we could worship and we could sacrifice and we could fix this thing because that's what we do. We're Athenians, we are human beings. We know how to fix things. We can fix this. Who can tell us the name of this unknown God? The oracles, in their wisdom, tell the Athenians to send a ship to Crete, home of the Cretans, of course, but also, as we know, home to our hero for the time being, Epimenides. The, the priestesses tell the Athenians to send a ship to Crete and find Epimenides. He would know how to appease the offended god because Epimenides had developed, like the oracle at Delphi, a great wisdom and a great ability to peer into difficult problems and deal in prophecy. How did he get to be this way? Well, one day he was out tending sheep, and he crawled into a cave, and he fell asleep for 57 years. Now, it all feels like we've been in a cave for 57 years the past few months, but believe me, this was a longer sleep than Epimenides was probably prepared for. Who knows what happened to his sheep? Obviously, he was not a very good shepherd. Asleep for 57 years. And Rip Van Winkle-like, he awakes. He's lost his sheep, but he has gained the gift of prophecy. And that is why the priestesses at Delphi tell the Athenians, to go to the Cretans, to pick up Epimenides on a ship and bring him to Athens. We'll talk a minute about what Epimenides says in Athens. We don't know exactly what happened to him. Some say he went back, lived happily ever after near his cave in Crete. Others say that he was put to death by some captors who he would, he would not tell favorable prophecies about. And that often happens to people. When you tell them bad news, they don't like to hear it, and that's the role of prophets often. Now, I was so curious about this story of Epimenides that I went back and found that in the 3rd century AD, Diogenes Laertes wrote The Lives of Eminent Philosophers. And in Book 1, Chapter 10, he talks about Epimenides. What does he say? And I'm going to quote from his book. Epimenides, according to many writers, was the son of Phaestus. Some, however, make him the son of Dositus, others of Asiagus. He was a native of Knossos in Crete, 
though from wearing his hair long, he did not look like a Cretan. One day he was sent into the country by his father to look for a stray sheep, and at noon he turned out of the way and went to sleep in a cave where he slept for 57 years. After this time he got up and went in search of the sheep, thinking he had been asleep only a short time. And when he could not find it, he came to the farm and found everything changed and another owner in possession. Then he went back to the town in utter perplexity. And there, on entering his own home, he fell in with people who wanted to know who he was. At length he found his younger brother, now an old man, and learnt the truth from him. So he became famous throughout Greece and was believed to be a special favorite of heaven. Hence, when the Athenians were attacked by pestilence and the Pythian priestess bade them purify the city, they sent a ship to Crete to ask the help of Epimenides. And he came in the 46th Olympiad, purified their city and stopped the pestilence in the following way, I break here from the words of Diogenes to say that perhaps we now have a clue to a very timely problem found in this ancient text from the third century AD. And so I'll continue. Stop the pestilence in the following way. He took sheep. He seems to have a fondness for finding sheep. He took sheep, some black and others white, and brought them to the Areopagus. And there he let them go whither they pleased, instructing those who followed them to mark the spot where each sheep lay down and offer a sacrifice to the local divinity. And thus it is said, the plague was stayed. Hence, even to this day, Altars may be found in different parts of Athens with no name inscribed upon them, which are memorials of this atonement. According to some writers, he declared the plague to have been caused by pollution, which Silon brought on the city, and he showed them how to remove it. The Athenians voted him a talent in money and a ship to convey him back to Crete, the money he declined but he concluded a treaty of friendship and an alliance between Knossos and Athens. And that, as Diogenes Laertes reports it, is the work of Epimenides on the Areopagus in Athens. And that cleverly ties up, in Paul's speech, two elements, the altar to an unknown god and the phrase from the Greek poet Epimenides. More than a coincidence, I would suggest. Others abbreviate and tell the story of Epimenides as he is solving this problem. They talk about the sheep, some black and some white, and the instruction that they were to build an altar or altars where the sheep lay down. They would go out in the morning, and of course they'd be very hungry, and nobody, except for people who sleep in caves for 57 years perhaps, nobody would be willing to lay down early in the morning when the grazing is good. And so it was thought that the sheep would stay up and graze, but in fact, sheep settled down, certain sheep, and those were the ones that were slaughtered. I could wait to the end of the sermon to tell you this, but if you're not thinking 
about Christ and the lamb that was led to the slaughter and the unknown God that Paul is talking about. I could wait to the end to draw those two threads together, but think of those sheep, the lamb of God. Think of those sheep mocking the spot and think of the sacrifice of those animals to an unknown God. Now, as some tell this story, the actions of the Athenians at this point is actually a cry of anguish because their sacrifice to an unknown God is the limit of their knowledge. The sacrifice to an unknown God, a God they cannot name, a God they cannot picture, a God they cannot create stories for, a God they cannot hold or shape, their sacrifice to an unknown God is a confession of their limits and their ignorance before this world in which we live and move and have our being. A confession that although we know, we do not know everything. Although things happen, we cannot control everything. Although this world rolls on and we think we know its course, there is an unknown God who we cannot name, who we cannot sacrifice to in a way that might meet our needs. This is a strange point for the Athenians to comprehend. The Athenians, like us moderns, even though they have a lot of strange beliefs as we look back, they thought of themselves as as rational as we do. And yet this was the point at which the Athenians came up against the boundaries of the known and knowable and had a problem and did not know where to take it. It was the Apostle Paul, the Areopagus, who told them about the unknown God that they had sacrificed to. That unknown God was the God that Paul was talking about. That unknown God was not simply the Jesus in the upper chamber, but that unknown God was the spirit of truth that would abide with people forever. But that spirit of truth, as the Holy Spirit is conceived, is something different, something hard to put a shape and form into. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus assures us that in that Holy Spirit, he is there. And that is why Paul can speak to him, can speak of him in Athens to the Athenians. The monument or the altar to an unknown God, the agnostos theos, as the Greeks would have it. Monument to an unknown God is a symbol of the limits of the rational world. And it is an acknowledgement that there is beyond those limits something more, but that something more is worth being aware of and heeding. And in those commandments we keep treating with reverence and respect. That temple to an unknown God is more than a clever attempt by humans to hedge their bets in this world and outsmart one another. That temple or altar to an unknown God is more than a rational appeal to an intellectual idea or 
philosophical theory that that temple to an unknown god is not just one of these other innumerable gods and goddesses we see throughout the world and every time and culture. That temple to the unknown god is the boundary of experience where we know that the spirit is with us but we cannot touch or name or reach that spirit but we know that that spirit intends good and truth and will never lie. That spirit, which is in some sense beyond rational discourse, paradoxically, as Epimedes would say, paradoxically is what Paul speaks about. That thing beyond the rational of which we can only barely speak, but of which we know because in this world we live and move and have our being by that Spirit's grace. Amen. Our next hymn is a great spring hymn. It uses words by a friend of ours, Robert Frost. He's buried in the churchyard right here behind the church in Bennington, Vermont. And this hymn is based upon one of his poems, from a further range. It is titled, Oh, Give Us Pleasure in the Flowers Today. Again, everyone, glad that you're listening in. Once again, we're 
here in Bennington, Vermont, our organist, Jean Marie Callahan, and myself, with the help of Nancy Andrews. We are making plans to have a small committee pulling together about thinking about when we can reopen, whether it's weeks, months, we don't know, but we are considering now that it's time to start making plans so that when we return, that we can return safely and not pose a hazard to one another and prove to the community as well that it's safe for us to gather in a significant number. So stay tuned in the weeks ahead for what will result from those investigations. A few people are going to be working on that. If you have thoughts or ideas, these also would be happy to hear them. I don't think you could hear the noise outside today, but they were doing some work on the exterior of the church. The south side, which is the uh, side which faces down towards Massachusetts, was being power washed, as well as the, the east side, which is the side that faces the metropolis of Woodford, Vermont. So though you may have heard some noise, if so, it was a little bit of power washing going on. Hopefully that means that in the summer to come, the church will, at least on two sides, receive a fresh coat of paint. Speaking of fresh coats of paint, that reminds me that the morning offering for the work of the church will now be received. give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be, all that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. Amen. Before we conclude the service today and with the final prayer and the Lord's Prayer, I just want to 
make two other remarks. I know it was a long sermon, but one feature of the speech that Paul gives at the Areopagus to the Athenians is that move of the Christian faith to a universal context. And this is universalizing language that Paul is using. He's speaking also from a, from a Jewish tradition, the tradition of not uttering the name of God, which is a whole other theme in this speech, which you can draw from what Paul says. But there is this sense that Paul is moving beyond Jerusalem, moving to the West, and the West was at this point Greece and Rome, and finding a language and a philosophy and a theology that will incorporate and give believers an ability to understand what is going on in the person of Christ. And he also, in these words, by universalizing it so and being able to speak to the rational West, he is developing a sense from which we can see that the limits that we place upon God are human limits, that the sense of the spirit in this world is a universal sense and not easily named in cultural realities or rational discourse, but cultural realities and rational discourses are two ways in which this sense of the spirit becomes incarnate. The presence of Christ and the discussion we've had this morning is taking that idea further to let us understand how the person of Christ incarnates not this world, but that other reality. And so let us pray. Dear God, be with us this day as we live and move and have our being, as we look at the world around us with our questions and our confusion, with our wonderment, with our joy, when we look at so many good things on a bright spring day and understand this creation is a gift, when we live in a time in which we are constrained and understand that this creation brings with its blessings, but also challenges, that life is tinged with death, that our existence is a combination of emotions and thoughts and feelings, sometimes in conflict. Teach us to seek and live by those things, those commandments, which point us to the true reality of this life and this existence. Teach us to move towards that which is holy and good. Teach us to move towards those words which heal and understand Teach us to move towards an attitude of listening and praying. Praying to that God who we know in the Bible, who we see in the actions of others, and who indeed appears unknown across this world and unknown even in our own life. Teach us to search for this thing unknown, to cherish it. Teach us to understand that even absence is presence, 
Teach us to move through difficult times with courage and love. Teach us to acknowledge our fears, but ready ourselves for lives of generosity and kindness. We make our prayer this day for those who have died throughout this world. We make our prayer for our workers, and our businesses, and our towns, our nations. We make our prayer for those doctors and nurses, scientists who diligently seek cures and answers. Teach us to be patient. Teach us to acknowledge our shortcomings and to be humble. Teach us to know our limits. Be with us this day and be with our families and our children. Be with those who give care. Be in this world in its bright spring beauty. Be in this world as a color of flower and fresh breeze that will let us know that life, this life in which we live and move and have our being, will yet sustain. Now, as Jesus taught us, we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our final hymn is Wherever I May Wander. May God bless us and keep us. May God's face shine upon us and give us peace this day and evermore. Amen.
Thanks for listening. Have a good day today and be thankful in the week ahead. Permission to podcast and stream the service music is granted under a license number 3009679 from CCLI with all other creative rights reserved.